please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, or your phone Bible, if that's what you use. If you're like me, there are certain passages of Scripture you've read over and over that have dramatically impacted your walk with the Lord. Verses that almost jumped off the page as if God spoke them directly to you. One of the wonderful truths about God's Word is that His Spirit applies it to our lives as we read it. Because His Word is, as Hebrews 4.12 says, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's Word is powerful. Well, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18 has encouraged and motivated me for many years. It's a short passage, but one that offers profound perspective to guide Christians through the many challenges and trials that we face in life. You've probably heard it said, we have no control over what happens to us, but only over how we respond. Though this is often true, many still see adversity as random and pointless. But as Christians, we know that God is sovereign that he gives and takes away, as it says in Job's 121, Job 121. And that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, as Romans 8:28. If we're teachable, God will use the words of the Apostle Paul to help us devalue the fleeting goods and experiences of this life and treasure the glorious eternal life that Christ purchased for us on the cross. Paul will give us a reality check, a reminder of our true hope, and a required strategy for shedding worldliness and growing in godliness, inspiring us to live fully for Jesus Christ as we look for his return. So now please follow with me as I read 1 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is God's word. Have you heard of the term crossfade? Who's heard the word of the word crossfade? A few of you. Webster's defines it as this: to fade in a sound or image in a motion picture or radio or television program while fading out another sound or image. I like this. Those who edit dialogue, <clears throat> music, or videos are familiar with this concept. When producing a video, usually a title frame or a graphic or picture is shown first. Then it's faded out as an image or video of a speaker fades in. If you've watched any of Pastor John or Pastor Ryan's messages on YouTube when they've been edited to just the sermon instead of the whole service, you've seen a crossfade. You see an image first with the Makakilo Bible Church logo or maybe the Matthew series logo, and then that fades out 
and it's a pretty quick fade in, that, in this case. That fades out as you see an image of Pastor John or Pastor Ryan at the pulpit praying, fading in. This is a crossfade. The idea is that the image you're initially focused on gradually disappears, but another image gradually comes into view, taking the place of the first one. It's a simple process, but it has a particular effect on us. We pay less and less attention to the first image, which fades away completely, and we become fixated on a new image, which we may be looking at for a very long time. In this passage from 2 Corinthians 4, Paul begins with a clear example of a crossfade. He says that our outer self, our body, is in the process of wasting away, breaking down due to the effects of the fall, while our inner self, our spiritual self, is being renewed or transformed to be like Christ. As Paul even says one chapter earlier, from one degree of glory to another is how this, trans is this inner transformation that's happening the older we get, the more reminders we experience that our bodies are breaking down. One scientific word for this is entropy. You probably heard the word entropy. Here's a definition of entropy. The general trend of the universe toward death and disorder. That's a cheerful definition. The general trend of the universe toward death and disorder. But that, is, that does describe what's happening to all of us, to our outer man. I recently changed a bathroom faucet in our house. I've done this over the years, did one recently after not doing so for a long time, and was reminded as I crammed my body under the sink over and over and over, because if you've installed faucets before, I'm not a plumber, but you know that um, it's never usually a simple, just you know, unhook everything, hook the new stuff up, and you're good. There's always a leak somewhere, or you forgot a washer, put a washer the wrong direction, or whatever. So I'm just getting under the sink over and over, and it reminded me, I don't bend as effortlessly or painlessly as I used to. It's because of entropy. It's because of what's happening to our bodies. Though we can go to the gym, we can eat healthy, get plenty of sleep, we don't ultimately control the speed or manner in which our bodies waste away. God, who is sovereign, says in Job 14.5 that he has determined and set limits on the length of each person's life. In the end, only God knows how much time we have on earth. However, as our physical life is fading away, we can turn our attention to growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus to the glory of God. The more we fix our eyes on knowing and serving Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the more we will eagerly anticipate the joy of his return. This comes from Hebrews 12 too, which also says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. Whatever we may suffer in this life, it will never come close to the agony that God's perfect son experienced when he bore the father's wrath to pay for our sins on the cross. And Jesus withstood unimaginable suffering with his eyes, his focus on the joy of redeeming sinners like you and me and granting us eternal life in his glorious presence. Paul drives home his description of a crossfade in 2 Corinthians with two brief but important comparisons in verses 17 and 18. 
He compares the afflictions of this life with eternal glory, and he compares the physical world which we can see and the unseen world we can't see. The afflictions of this life versus eternal glory and the physical world we can see with the unseen eternal kingdom of God. There's so much vital perspective to glean from this passage. Point one is that in verse 16, Paul gives us a reality check. Point one, Paul gives us a reality check. He states that though our outer self is wasting away, we're in the process of dying every moment of our lives, our inner self is being renewed day by day. These two inevitable processes are occurring simultaneously in the life of every Christian. Our bodies are breaking down, but God is sanctifying us and conforming us to the image of Christ. If we focus only on the first process, we will despair. It will happen. But Paul says, so we don't lose heart. We do not lose heart. He actually uses a Greek word here, enkakumen, which means we aren't faint, weary, or weak. We will not fail if we keep the second process he describes in view. So how does Paul expect this crossfade he describes to actually encourage us? Well, first, he connects our future hope directly to Christ's resurrection. He begins verse 16 with, so, or some translations have, therefore, so, or therefore, we do not lose heart. But why not? Since we're dying. Previously in chapter 4, we're told that God has revealed his glory and the gospel to us in the person of Jesus Christ. But we carry this supreme truth around in fragile bodies, or Paul calls them jars of clay, to allow God's power to shine through us Paul says that though we are afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down, we are carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. He says this in chapter 4, verse 10. This is such an important truth to grasp. We're in the process of dying, which should be hopeless, but because God raised Jesus from the dead, we have unshakable hope. Paul reminds us of this in verse 14, saying, we know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. What greater future hope could there be than this? In the words of one commentator, this constant renewal that God is bringing about in us points forward to the hope of being raised and presented to Christ. What an awesome thought. God is making us holy and preparing us to be raised and presented to Christ. So this is how Paul is giving us hope through this reality check. Second, Paul encourages us by reminding us that God is at work sanctifying our inner selves daily. Day by day. Every day he's at work in us. Much of the time, we often feel our spiritual growth is two steps forward and one step back. Or sometimes it's, we feel like it's one step forward, two steps back. 
We're not always faithful to surrender to the Holy Spirit's work conforming us to the image of Christ. But God is faithful, as Paul reminds us so clearly in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Probably the most important lesson I learned as a young Christian was very, very simple. It's critical to read my Bible every single day. That was, that was a big lesson. Probably the most important lesson as a young Christian. No exceptions. I was always amazed how quickly my mind and the attitude of my heart could wander away from pleasing God to some selfish, empty pursuit in just one day or even a few hours. Our flesh is always trying to pull us away from obeying God. And Satan takes no holidays. He's always looking for ways to derail our progress in holiness. As we read God's word daily, he teaches, rebukes, corrects, and trains us in righteousness, as it says, in, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16. Paul's reality check confirms that our bodies are failing, but he says, don't lose heart because God is renewing us in Christ every day. 1 John 2.17 offers a similar perspective. It says, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is that eternal perspective, that description of that cross-faith. Outer selves are wasting away. Inner selves are being renewed by Christ day by day. Well, next in verse 17, <clears throat> Paul gives us, this is point two, a reminder of our true hope. He gives us a reminder of our true hope. Our culture is clearly obsessed with health and fitness, is it not? We're, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with staying healthy. That's a good thing. I try to stay healthy, too. That's a good thing. But our culture is obsessed. We're constantly bombarded with images of the ideal man or the ideal woman. I just recently saw a commercial for something new to me. It's, uh, and maybe this is like I'm the last person to discover this new gadget. But it's, it's a, a mirror, home workout mirror which allows you to see both the video of your fitness instructor right there in the mirror and how fantastic you look while working out at the same time. You can see your instructor and yourself. I'm not saying there's no value in that, but I just found that kind of interesting. Paul and most early Christians were far too busy spreading the gospel, being persecuted for that, to be tempted by many things that we are preoccupied with. So his encouragement in verse 17 is that light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In other words, whether your body naturally fails or you are martyred for Christ, earthly physical well-being is not where to place your hope. 
I'd like to share two observations about this verse, verse 17. First of all, um, of all people throughout history, Paul definitely has the credentials to share this hopeful perspective. Let's think about this. The man who, who just shared in this verse that light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Let's think about what Paul has endured for the sake of the gospel. It's almost comical that Paul calls his own sufferings light momentary affliction. He doesn't write from an ivory tower offering platitudes of encouragement to Christians suffering someplace far away. He speaks from vast real-world experience. In 2 Corinthians 11, a little further into the book, verses 24 through 27, Paul describes what he has suffered for the sake of the gospel. Think about these, these uh, things that Paul has endured to share the gospel of Christ. Five times he received 40 lashes less one. And if you study history a little bit and, and the, the uh, methods of cruelty that the Romans had developed and perfected to punish prisoners, this was, this was a, a big one. And the reason it was 40 lashes minus one or less one was that they had discovered that often 40 lashes would kill somebody. So they backed up just one lash. And this is, you know, these whips with little bits of bone or perhaps glass shards on them that would rip the flesh off someone's body. So 40 lashes less one was designed to almost kill you. And Paul had endured this punishment five times. Five times. Three times he was beaten with rods. And this might be something similar to if you've heard about caning in some countries where that's, that can be a punishment for a, a crime. Very, very severe and painful. Three times beaten with rods. Once he was stoned and dragged out of the city of Lystra and thought to be dead. So if, you, if we just stop and think for a minute, how bad was the stoning if he looked dead and was actually dragged out of the city because it was assumed he was dead? Can you imagine Stoned and thought to be dead. Three times he was shipwrecked, adrift a night and day at sea. No Coast Guard at that time, just drifting in the ocean. Somehow he didn't drown. The Lord sustained him. And he also suffered many sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, nearly constant danger from so many enemies and from the elements. This is the man, this is the Paul who tells us to view our afflictions as light and momentary. How amazing is that? Well, second observation about verse 17 is that Paul tells us our suffering has great eternal purpose. He says our suffering, our afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This does not mean that our sufferings earn us a place in heaven, by the way. Scripture is clear that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, not by works. Many of us know, are really familiar with Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
by grace through faith and Christ alone is how we are saved. Another possible translation of, of the phrase translated preparing for us is that our afflictions will result in an eternal weight of glory. One commentator says that our earthly afflictions, uh, afflictions prepare us for eternal glory by weaning us from the world, purifying our hearts, causing us to look to God for consolation and support in our trials, and inducing us to contemplate the glories of the heavenly world. In chapter 20 of the book of Acts, Paul summons the elders of the church he had planted in Ephesus to meet him in Miletus. At this point in Paul's ministry and life, he knows he may be martyred for his faith in Christ very soon. And he wants to give them one last exhortation to stay faithful to God and to the word of his grace. Modeling the kind of eternal perspective he calls us to in today's passage, Paul says this in Acts 20. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If I can just finish this course and the ministry the Lord Jesus gave me to testify to the gospel of grace. How could Paul have this outlook about serving Christ even if it meant losing his life? Because Paul kept his eyes on the prize. He stayed focused on the glorious future awaiting him in the Lord's presence. So let's think for a minute, how great is this glory that, we're, that Paul's talking about, that we are told to look forward to? How great is this glory Paul tells us about? One 19th century preacher said this, about this passage. It is hardly possible to express the force of this passage as it stands in the original, the translation into English. Nothing greater can be said or imagined. The apostle, about to describe the happiness of the righteous in heaven, takes fire. And I, I think he means gets fired up with his words. He calls it not glory merely, but a weight of glory in opposition to the light thing of our affliction, and an eternal weight of glory, in opposition to the momentary duration of our affliction, and a most exceeding eternal weight of glory, as beyond comparison, greater than all the dazzling glories of riches, fame, power, pleasure, or anything that can be possessed in the present life. This is the glory Paul's telling us about. So how does he sum up his instructions for, to avoid losing heart when we experience trials and suffering? How do we downplay our afflictions and magnify the coming glories of heaven? I'm glad you asked. Paul wraps up the short passage with verse 18, and he gives us a required strategy. This is point three. Paul gives us a required strategy he tells us in verse 18, look not to the things that are seen, 
but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul says, very simply, don't look at what your eyes can see, but do look at the unseen realm of God's kingdom. So simple, but not such an easy perspective to maintain day by day. Where verses 16 and 17 give us a description of our current status within this crossfade of wasting away yet being renewed inwardly. Verse 18 gives us a prescription. He says simply, don't fixate on this earthly life, focusing on our dying bodies and suffering, but do fix our eyes on Jesus and his kingdom by being renewed. And Paul says in another place, putting on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says that in Ephesians 4.24. And longingly looking for the glorious return of Jesus. So how do we practically follow Paul's advice, this simple instruction from Paul? First, we have to stop looking at things that tempt us to cling to this life. We have to stop looking at things that tempt us to cling to this life. And this will vary from person to person. We're all different. Different earthly things attract different people. For example, there might be a TV show that makes you feel very unhappy with your job. And so you you obsess about changing careers, feeling that that's the key to your happiness. Or maybe you listen to a health and wellness podcast that feeds your fear of getting sick and dying, and this becomes an obsession. The truth is, it's hard not to be overly preoccupied with this life. It's the only one we can currently see and touch. But in so many different places, Scripture urges us to focus on God's kingdom, which lasts forever. For example, Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, verses 20 and 21, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We all instinctively and experientially know that the things of this world don't last. We know that. That's why when we put our hope in them, we eventually lose heart. But Paul began this passage with, so we do not lose heart. There's something obviously so important, so special about his prescription for maintaining hope that it overcomes the inevitable despair that focusing on this life brings. We could look at many more biblical exhortations, verses that tell us not to stay too attached to this world or this life. But looking at Paul's second admonition in verse 18 really puts things in perspective. Paul tells us to intentionally and purposefully look at unseen eternal things. This process of looking at unseen things is much more than a daily glance. The word that Paul chooses here is a more pointed one than than the ordinary word he could have used for seeing something. It's translated, keep your eyes on, in other places in the New Testament, like Philippians 3.17, and it implies a concentrated, protracted effort 
and an interested gaze, interested gaze or protracted effort when looking at something. One minor example, very minor, might be the difference between uh, a quick glance at a neighbor as you're driving to work, you know, your neighbor steps outside his house or garage and you see him and you wave at him. That's a glance, quick glance. Versus being reunited with a family member that you haven't seen for 10 years. And they're, you're finally with this family member you've missed and now have the chance to, to see in person. You don't want to stop looking at them. Or maybe you have a child or a grandchild that you don't see very often. And you get to see them. You can't stop staring at them because you love them and you're, you're in their presence. This is the kind of look, the kind of seeing that Paul is telling us we need to have of the unseen kingdom of God. It takes protracted effort to see this way. Charles Spurgeon shared an illustration that I found interesting comparing us, people here on earth, <clears throat> to people living in a large circular tower, something similar to like a, a castle turret, big round giant tower. There are no windows in this tower, just small slits kind of all around the tower. And those are you know, maybe there for defense of the tower. Small slits. The inhabitants spend their days busily moving from one task to another, uh, going around the circumference of the tower. So they have these little stations and tasks they do, busily moving around within the tower, seldom stopping to look through the cracks in the wall. And this is what Spurgeon says. A dead wall, very near and very thick, obstructs our view. Here and there, on a Sabbath or other season of seriousness, a slit is left open. Heaven might be seen through these, but alas, the eye which is habitually set for the earthly inside of the tower cannot, during such momentary glimpses, adjust itself to higher things. Unless you pause and look steadfastly, you will see neither clouds nor sunshine through these openings or the distant sky. So long has the soul looked upon the world and so firmly is the world's picture fixed in its eye that when it is turned for a moment heavenward, it retains no distinct impression of the things that are unseen and eternal. That's a, that's, that's a great picture of, I think, how we usually live, all of us. We seldom look in a prolonged, purposeful way at the things of God's kingdom. It's usually just a glance. So when Paul tells us, look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, he means that rather than glancing momentarily at heavenly things, we must be intentional and look, as Spurgeon's illustration says, look steadfastly, long and hard, at the eternal truths God has revealed to us in his word. So how do we incorporate Paul's required strategy from verse 18 into our daily lives? I just have three practical suggestions for ways that we can incorporate what Paul tells us to do into our lives. First, we can give ourselves a reality check each day when we read, meditate on, and memorize Scripture. Psalm 119.11 says, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
God's word gives us vital perspective on his holiness, on our sin, on his redemptive plan of salvation, and on our Savior's second coming to establish his kingdom. I can say, I can tell you as someone who did not grow up with Awana, which is a great program. I didn't grow up with Awana and scripture memorization. But I want to tell you that memorizing scripture is powerful for adults as well as children. It's something that years ago, just because of wanting to be able to access truths and perspectives that God gives me in his word, I started doing little by little certain passages. And I want to encourage you that being able to recall verses that that remind you to keep your focus on the things of God and his kingdom throughout the day is so helpful in setting your mind on the things above. I encourage you to memorize. Just start with a couple key passages that will help you keep your focus on eternal things. And a couple suggestions would be 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 16. Great, fairly short passage with eternal perspective. Or Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated with God. Passages like that help us keep an eternal perspective throughout the day. So first point is, stay in God's word daily, meditate on his word, memorize his word. Second, we will receive a reminder of our true hope, which was point two, when we attach our hope to Christ's return. There's got to be that connection. Our hope is to be, it says in that passage in 1 Peter, set on Christ's return for us. We must attach our hope to Christ's return. Peter, Peter says in one, uh, chapter 1, verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Every time we place our hope for happiness or fulfillment in temporary worldly things, and, and some of these things, we don't want to, just saying them, they sound so dumb. But I do this. Maybe you do this. We're, we're, looking for, we're, we're going through the drudgery of life, but we're looking forward to the next episode of our favorite TV show. Do you ever do that? I mean, you're not thinking my hope eternally is in that, but that's what we're looking forward to. Or we're getting some new furniture. Or we have a vacation coming. But if we put our hope in those things, we end up discouraged and empty. We all do this often, don't we? Only the hope we place in the Lord, in his kingdom, and in his return will lead us to know and serve him faithfully and will be rewarded with fullness of joy in his presence. That's what Psalm 1611 tells us, awaits in God's presence. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. So second, we must attach our hope, what we look forward to, to Christ's return. And then third, third point, practical suggestion, we implement Paul's required strategy, which is what he gives us in verse 18, when we exercise our faith. Sounds simple. We exercise our faith. Hebrews 11.6 tells us it is impossible to please God without faith. When Thomas expressed his faith in Christ, only after touching Jesus' wounds, Jesus said this, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Peter says our faith is more precious than gold. We can't manufacture faith. 
We can't muster up faith, but we can exercise the measure of faith God has given to each of us. And, and we can pray like the father in Mark 9, whose son Jesus healed of an evil spirit, who said, I believe, help my unbelief. We can ask God to strengthen, to increase our faith in him. If we're going to implement Paul's required strategy, we've got to exercise our faith. So to sum up this short, and I, I believe powerful passage, the Apostle Paul has given us a reality check, reminding us that this life is an example of a crossfade. Our physical bodies are wasting away, but our inner spiritual selves are being renewed daily. And Paul includes a reminder of our true hope. Through the afflictions we experience on earth, God is preparing for us an indescribably glorious future in his presence, which is guaranteed by Christ's resurrection. And finally, Paul shares a required strategy to continue to grow in godliness and be prepared for Christ's return. We must take our eyes off the things of this crumbling, dying world, and we must fix our eyes on Jesus and his kingdom, which lasts forever. When Paul says, so we do not lose heart, his words carry such tremendous weight. If Paul, who suffered so severely for proclaiming the gospel, maintained his hope of a glorious future in Christ's presence, so can those of us who haven't truly suffered for following Christ yet. We may, but we haven't really. Even if we're living mostly comfortable lives, our physical bodies are still wasting away day by day. But our one unshakable, unchanging hope is in Jesus, our risen, returning Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its clarity in this passage. It's, um, I think, easy to understand, but maybe hard to implement in our lives. Lord, we need your help. We need your help. Um, would, you, would you continue? We know you will because you're faithful, but we ask you to continue the work of sanctifying us, those of us who are believers, daily conforming us to the image of our wonderful Savior, Jesus, our perfect Savior. And Lord, let us not get um, fixated on earthly things, on our bodies wasting away, on earthly pleasures or pursuits that leave us empty, but help us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. We will never endure what he endured. But Lord, give us strength to endure whatever you set before us for the joy that awaits us in his presence. And Lord, would you help us exercise the faith you've given us and even increase our faith to see the glories of your kingdom, to, to, to put our hope in being with you when we are given a glorified body and then forever we'll be with our Lord, with our Savior, experiencing the fullness of joy that's in your presence. Lord, help us make changes, make adjustments in our lives that we need to 
to keep our eyes set on unseen things of your kingdom, not fixed on fleeting things in this life that are passing away. And God, I pray if there are any here today who have not yet trusted in Christ, that you would help them see their sin and how it separates them from you and that you, your spirit would work in them, your truth, your word would lead them to repent of their sins and put their trust in Jesus Christ for salvation and eternal life, that they would have this hope that we have in Christ, this glorious hope. Again, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit who's working in each of us who are your children. And we, we give all honor and glory to you for saving us. In Jesus' name. Amen.